As human beings now, we, or almost all of us, move in, if you like, many different subcultures of the larger culture. And it seems to me that, in a way, our larger culture is a, is a, is a mix. Uh, 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 we've inherited a mixture of historical cultures so that we've inherited the perspectives of the Western so-called Enlightenment and, and scientific materialism and that kind of reductionist modernism that I've been referring to, of modernity, etc. And, and yet still lingering um, less ostensibly in their r- religious forms, but still lingering is the uh, kind of... Uh, ethics or, or va- value system of Christianity. So that in regards to the self, the views we have of selves, of what a human being is, the sense of ourselves and the parameters of ourselves, the larger culture is actually confused, just, just uh, as a sort of result of history. So, as I said, we, we've inherited this um, reductionism that goes with science. We've inherited all, all that uh, I've pointed out about mo- modernity. Uh, but within that is, or part of that, is um, a, an emphasis on individualism. So it's, it's a very individualistic culture uh, and a humanist culture in terms of what, the, what a human being is, the range of that as kind of um, not really including the divine um, so much. Um, <clears throat> uh, so we've inherited all of that and these um, uh, ideas of, of virtue or, or value or sin, uh, if you like, even if we don't use that word, that come from the Christian um, tradition. So, for example, pride is a sin. Uh, and uh, humility is a virtue. Um, and now whether we don't consider ourselves Christian at all, we, 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 th- those values in regard to the self, self-effacing, not blowing one's own trumpet too much, we don't like We don't like that when we see it in other people, we try not to do it because we know others won't like it in us. There's a kind of humility, which is often a false humility that runs through the culture, at the same time as being an individualistic culture, a culture of... Uh, who's going to win, who's going to lose, of trying to pump up the individual in, in, in various ways, um, of the individual feeling alienated from society. All, all of this is, is wrapped up together, makes quite a confusing mix for us to have inherited in relationship to the, the sense and the view of self and other. And then within that, in, in say, spiritual cultures, particularly Buddha, the culture of Buddha Dharma, then we have this notion of no self or not self, or the self is empty. And uh, this is, for a start, diff- a difficult uh, teaching for people to understand. It has, lo- I, I think, it has lots of degrees of depth. There's many ways that we can talk about the self being empty in this way and that way. They're not the same. Um, and uh, as I said, levels there, but. What happens within Buddha Dharma culture with that is that um, there's a suspicion of self quite often, or or we tend to um, dismiss uh, someone surrounded by, uh, saturated by these kind of teachings and attitudes, um, uh, tends to kind of maybe lean their orientations in life in a way that um, self and uh, the enchantment of self will sound suspicious, and maybe self and uh, all that it involves is a little bit denigrated and dismissed, or a lot. <clears throat> it happens less now as, as we have more psychotherapy um, imbuing Dharma teachings uh, or a lot of inside meditation teachings, but still, there's a tension here that comes from the um, complexity, because they, the mixed messages in our cultures about uh, and in regard to self and the sense of self and the view of self and what a human being is and all that. So self and other. And I want to talk about a little bit about re-enchanting self and other and what a little bit about what might be involved in that and we've touched on some of that already. Ah, uh, 
And just to say, as as uh, not an aside, as, as some something relevant, you know, there will be, uh, rather, there are accusations from some, especially um, of a more secular persuasion within the Dharma, um, a secular agenda within the Dharma, that almost view the whole point or one of the main thrusts of, of uh, Buddha Dharma, what the Buddha was saying, state that um, most important to the Buddha, uh, the Buddha and, and the teaching was this kind of um, shattering of, of, of uh, any notion of soul or self or divinity. Uh, that was the Buddha's central project originally. And then what happened historically over time is... Uh, he died, and that message got lost, and then, lo and behold, foolish humanity brings back in old ideas that he would have um, utterly rejected in his secularism, and uh, ideas of selves, and souls, and divinities, and all that, so that the Mahayana and the Vajrayana teachings are regarded as a pollution and a uh, devolution, if you like, as opposed to evolution, of, of the teachings. There's impurities coming in from other systems, from uh, human uh, lack of, uh, kind of honesty and stiff upper lip, etc., and clarity uh, and steel in the face of our real existential situation. All, all this is, is there. Um, now, I've touched on this uh, before, but hidden in there is an unacknowledged fantasy, an image of the Buddha, of the Dharma, of the history, um, what Nietzsche calls the glorification of origins. Uh, a thing is more authentically it itself when at the beginning of its so-called existence um, and then gets uh, you, you know, downhill from there, the glorification of origins or the glorification of beginnings. Um, all of that is um, fantasy and image. Uh, now, we can point that out. We could also play the game a little bit and say, if we want to, and say that, if we want to play this game of fantasy of origins, and actually say that it's rather than concepts like divine, divinity, God, angel, self, soul, whatever these words that we use now and that we're, we're seeking to give permission to and re-enchant. Rather than those, we can say actually it's the realism and the reification that is so much at the core and at the, at the basis of a lot of contemporary dharma, um, as well as many other spiritual traditions nowadays, uh, contemporary spiritualities. Um, that's more of a return to self, if you like, and God, if you like, to use these words um, in, in their larger context. Self in the Mahayana means not just personal self, but also phenomenal, phenom, phenomenal, phenomenal self, the self of phenomena. Self really means any belief in this, this thing, uh, whether it's a human thing or an inanimate thing or an atom or whatever, um, self really means the belief in that as having inherent existence. And it applies not just to um, human beings, but it applies to phenomena as well. Personal self and phenomenal self, both are empty. But it's that return to the phenomenal self, to the kind of belief in the reality, a basic reality of things, whether it's an atomistic reality or just the reality of the existential situation, the reality of matter, all that in, uh, conceived of in a certain way. That is the return of self. And God, uh, you know, words like life with a capital L, L. or this, um, they are the God of secular modern modernism. Uh, they are wor they're kind of trump words that uh, trump everything else. They're four-letter words that get used um, actually vaguely, but as if they're something real, as if we're talking about the same thing. So it's the realism and the reification, one could say, that is more the return to uh, self and God. Uh, and it's evident in, in all these different kinds of teachings and, and the conceptions of the path and the goal uh, and the almost 
ubiquitous language of what is, of bare attention, of being with things as they are, uh, a phrase that the Buddha did use, that one didn't use bare attention, um, but used that phrase, things as they are, but it, it meant it in a very different way. It meant things as they are, as things are empty. Be here now, life as it presents itself, we've touched on this before, but we could say that actually it's in the realism and the reificationism that um, the teachings are polluted if we want to play along with that game of fantasies. The most important thing is to acknowledge uh, fantasy. Fantasy of Buddha, fantasy of Dharma, fantasy of history, all of that. So it's complex within this confusion that I was alluding to earlier, um, the confusion of cultural messages and cultural inheritances, um, and it's confusing. And then we talk about, as we've been uh, unfolding on the street, different types of enchantment. And so if we talk about enchanting the self, we don't mean just the kind of what we call the spiritual enchantment, um, the, the kind that sort of dissolves the person into the universal oneness or the universal onenesses of this or that flavor oneness um, that don't uh, put an emphasis on the particularity but move towards the universal. And we've also been differentiating between what we've called a bit clumsily sounding immature imaginal enchantment and mature imaginal based enchantment. So all this is complex. When we come to the the, the, the question or try to unfold or find a way forward with a re-enchantment of self and other, um, it's complex for all those reasons and complex because um, we have... Uh, Psychological needs, you could say. Um, and there are certain psychological paradigms mixed in with all that about what constitutes a healthy self, a psychological self. These two are historically conditioned. And again, we tend to think, oh, this view that we're now at with modern psychotherapy and history, or depending on your allegiance to different contemporary psychologies, we tend to think that's real. Whereas a notion, say, from medieval times or, or a- ancient times about what constituted, what even a self was and what constituted a self or healthy self or unself, this is vastly different now, historically, vastly different. We just take it all for granted as, as a reality, as, again, this subtraction story of shaking off prior illusions, encrustations, unnecessary uh, veilings of what is a basic truth about um, self, reality, health, and all that psychological health. So into this complexity as well is the whole delicate, complex question of um, psychologies, self-notions, psychological paradigms, etc. So somehow we need to kind of include all this and navigate among all that um, in talking about re-enchanting the self and the other. And I can only do a little bit of that in this talk. But uh, And one of the characteristics of modernity, of the sort of dominant view, if you like, of the culture in the West today, is that, excuse me, Self and divinity have become separated, or rather, in 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 the dominant view, and, and this goes back even before modernity um, to um, uh, certain entrenched uh, dogmas in Christianity. There was a separation of the human and the divine. In the more mystical traditions, um, that that separation uh, was either never agreed upon or. Uh, Different practices and different teachings came in to re-wed the human and the divine in lots of different ways and at lots of different levels, both as a starting conception and, and as something to move towards. We'll maybe touch on some of that. But into the, the dominant contemporary paradigm is this either a separation of the self and the divine if there's any divinity, uh, sense of divinity or concept of divinity um, left at all in, in the general picture of what human being is and what the cosmos is. The philosopher Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, um, in, in his m- massive tome on uh, a secular age, actually 
one way he has of defining uh, what constitutes secularism is uh, that it it uh, it's the say it's characterized by um, the it's a time in um, the evolution or, or, or the history of uh, human society where it's quite possible for many, if not most people, to have a goal in life of flourishing, um, uh, purely human flourishing. In other words, one can live one's life and really everything in one's life, one's work, one's relationship, one's um, whatever, whatever else it is, the food one eats, it's all um, seen from the perspective and with the goal of a only human flourishing. Um, and so at a certain point in, in the West, that became, uh, in, in the last hundred years, that became um, quite possible and quite acceptable um, for that to be the orientation to life that um, many people were able to have. So that's the first time in human history. I don't know if that's true, because actually reading the Pali Canon, you get the sense that there were certain sects or teachers who promulgated just such a view. How popular that was in the wider society, I don't know. Um, but this is his almost as a defining characteristic of secularism, or one of them uh, that he uses. And I think it's quite interesting um, this word flourishing has become so so popular in some sociological and psychological uh, and political uh, discourses. Um, purely human flourishing, in other words, with no reference or need uh, to have uh, a relationship with divinity or the, or the flourishing is something that is um, a flourishing of something more than the human. Um, what uh, Taylor calls uh, self-sufficing humanism. Self-sufficing humanism. The human as conceived according to modernity with that kind of uh, flatness and exclusion of divinity that we've been alluding to repeatedly and living one's life for the sake of, the, of, of flourishing within those parameters of purely human flourishing. Um, very, very normal nowadays. Very normal in our, in our society, and it's characteristic of secularism. And this is this is actually interesting um, historically. Again, it's like when Freud wrote his uh, Civilization and, and its Discontents um, his book, um, he said there are two purposes of civilization or culture. Um, one is to protect human beings against nature, and the other is to adjust the mutual relations of of human beings. Um, in, in different ways, in, in, in terms of laws and, and things. Protecting its nature, adjusting the mutual relations. Probably, uh, well, maybe, uh, let's say, 30 years ago or some decades ago, um, a lot of politicians and sociologists um, would probably have said, well, we've done these now in the West. Um, I would put a huge question mark with that, uh, whether we have been so intent on protecting ourselves, so-called protecting ourselves from nature, and now we are actually more in danger from climate change and uh, loss of species and environmental pollution and degradation. But, uh, and as to our mutual relations, it seems to me that also needs quite a lot of work. But um, a lot of people would have thought that way. And so these two that Freud pointed to have done, and so the purpose of civilization uh, actually then was kind of allowed to expand and added this human flourishing. So the very purpose of our civilization nowadays, now that we're, and, and we are, you know, rel much more protected from nature, a lot of our mutual relations are taken care of, um, etc. So despite all the sort of lacunae there and, and the glaring uh, problems that remain there. Um, uh, what came in as a, if you like, implicit or explicit purpose of culture was this um, goal, uh, culture, or civilization served human flourishing, humanistic flourishing. Human flourishing. But again, what does it mean? 
What does it mean, this word that's so commonly used now, flourishing, it's become popular? May you flourish, allowed to flourish, etc. What does it mean? What is it assumed to involve? More than uh, just the basic requisites, um, uh, food and, and home and, 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 and these kind of things, and water. Um, and again, even in the... US and, and the UK, even these requisites are uh, not guaranteed to every member of society. But over and above that, uh, the thrust of this talk is not about that, but um, uh, over and above uh, the requisites, what is human flourishing assumed to involve? And what is left out or actually overlooked in what it means for a human being to flourish, or what is uh, a part of human flourishing. It's worth pointing out that historically, um, um, arenas or containers or forms or avenues that uh, care for and provide for and allow and nourish soulfulness um, Historically, they have been part of the stable civilizations and cultures of the human past for millennia. Millennia. It's only uh, the modern West, uh, and it is, is historically speaking, strange in not in its lack of emphasis on soulfulness, in the way that it doesn't really integrate that. Um, need into its forms, into its ri rituals, etc. It comes in anyway. It can't help but come in. So, but it's not really consciously thought about or provided for. Probably, I would say, in the best in the best ways that are possible, because it's simply not part of the dominant paradigm and discourse. So it gets squeezed out of public spaces. It gets squeezed out of. Um, public, uh, what's, what's the word, public uh, discourses and, and public um, activities and engagements and all of that. So the self is regarded a certain way and the whole movement and what it is to be a human being, the movement of one's life between birth and death, it's all regarded um, in, in the dominant way a certain way and then within our different subcultures and all this complexity but this leveling, this only human this secular humanism uh, and the way in the culture in which the human being is now regarded compare that to um, something I heard a few months ago um, that in Burkina Faso in Africa um, in the in the tribes, in the countryside, in the rural villages, um, when a woman is pregnant, at about six months, I think, at about six months, the elders of the the village elders or the tribe elders call the woman to a kind of council, a meeting, and they put her into a trance, or she goes into a trance, and they address themselves, the elders of the tribe address themselves to, to the baby uh, in, her, in her womb. And they ask that baby, uh, while she is in trance, while, while the mother is in trance, they ask the, the, the baby, what do the gods want to manifest through you? What do the gods want to manifest through you? Is one question. And the second question what needs to change in the village to make space for you? What do the gods want to manifest through you? And what needs to change in the village to make space for you? And the mother in her trance is spoken through by, by the baby. And the elders listen. And they take it in. And they there. can you hear the, 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 the way that the human being is, is being... Uh, seen the depth of the respect, the beauty of that, and how such a notion just simply has uh, such a depth of notion simply has no space in our in our contemporary society, just by the virtue of the structure of the society, but also by the virtue of the structure of the thinking. 
and compare that kind of reverence, orientation, respect, openness, sacredness of the human being, of the self, um, being born into this world, being born into the world of, of society and manifestation, and being born into its uh, individual place within that society, and its calling. All of this is there. Compare that with uh, the... the uh, what has been exposed by various Western philosophers and social critics uh, over the over the last few hundred years, um, uh, a kind of, as I said, individualism, but one that's actually manipulated by capitalism and by the market economy. So we are regarded as, as if you like, pawns in in for the advertising industry for the whole way the economy works. Consumerism is necessary, you know, all, all these things. Uh, Michel Foucault talks about the objectification of subjects. The human subject, the human self, becomes an object um, in a kind of power play. And, and the depth of one's humanity, what it means to be a self, um, is effectively disregarded, reduced in the most um, complete way, almost, sometimes. I mean, before Foucault, there was the, the Frankfurt School, uh, Adorno and Hockheimer that I alluded to earlier, and talked about the culture industry, um, the, the way that a whole industry was um, being set up through capitalism that really um, manipulated individuals in, in lots of different ways. Very, very different um, scope, range, sense, view of human beings. And again, compare that with Islam, um, where they say the cardinal sin uh, is the forgetfulness of who one is. In other words, to forget the sacredness, the depths, the range, the uh, divinity, if you like, of, of the human being, of the self, of your individual self, um, and your individual uh, callings, if you like, and all the aspects of yourself, will go into that. That's, that's actually the cardinal sin. It's this forgetfulness of who one is. Again, in the teachings of Buddha nature, in, in, in the Buddha Dharma, it's like, that if you like, your true self, if, if one uses that language, or, or your um, essence, or at least your capacity, is for divinity. The self is, so the human being is something much, much more in its range and dimensions than this flatland version. Uh, and again, in the, in the, in, in the um, Christian tradition, they talk about the imago Dei, the, Im, the Im, uh, being made in the image of God. And the possibility of the, in the mystical tradition, the possibility of in my human self, in your human self, in my mind, in my heart, in my life, in my actions, there is the possibility of um, uh, imitatio Dei, but, but more than that, the incarnation of Christ, the mystical incarnation of Christ in the depths of my mind, in the depths of my heart, in my soul. Uh, there's a transformation, a transubstantiation that's already there um, in potential uh, and at one level in actuality, but that can be incarnated in, 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 in the fuller sense of that word, incarnated. Brought into manifestation, brought into this world of, of materiality as we see it, in the different ways we see it. So in modernity and, and uh, now, nowadays in our, in our Western culture, um, as I said, we get mixed messages regarding the self and the individual and individualism. Um, just as we get mixed messages, and this is all woven together, about desire versus greed. And how desire is trumped and greed is bad. Uh, and sexuality, uh, mixed messages, huge, hugely confusing, and all of these are aspects of self. I'm going to come back to this. So we're getting mixed messages about all kinds of things, and yet many people, um, maybe they weren't articulated or something, but you could say we're suffering from this disenchantment, uh, the, 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 the disenchantment that's, um, if you like. 
integral almost to to modernism. And we're trying to enchant the self. Somehow um, people are living with these paradigms, oppressed, constrained by these paradigms, constrained by structural um, uh, structures in society. And somehow, of course, something in them wants to re-enchant the self, wants to have an enchanted sense of self and of other. Um, and people do find ways of doing that, or limited ways of doing that, or they'll do it on occasion, or when you're in love for a period of time, etc., etc. But somehow, trying to enchant the self without uh, allowing a sense of depth and divinity, that's not allowed. Um, and often that enchantment comes, uh, as I said, through, we're given a sort of, in some ways, vast set of toys to play with because of what um, modern society and technology allows, but in another way, a very, a very thin, meagre palette um, and set of tools and uh, toys with which, with which self can be enchant, re-enchanted. So. Uh, one tries, so many people trying to fashion a unique, interesting self, myself as an individual, to appear, uh, to create, uh, some, somehow do something to fashion and create what appears to be, this is me and I'm unique and I'm interesting, uh, etc. When actually there might not be that much interest there because the whole view of the self is actually constrained, it can't be that interesting. And what are we given to do this with? Well, there's consumption, there's consumerism. You can buy these clothes, or you can create a certain look, or buy that car, or whatever it is. So we are rich. Uh, we live like kings compared to uh, people in the past. Our standard of living is equivalent to um, what, what royalty would have experienced in the past, probably way beyond that. And yet, at one level, we're poor. We are poor um, in terms of if we just if we just receive what we are given um, in terms of our view of who we are, and what the self is. We are poor and um, not able to re-enchant with 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 those deeply with, the, with within that paradigm and with those those opportunities that we're given. In fact, the opposite happens. The um, I mean, this is a kind of Marxist phrase. So I, I'm, ten, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a Marxist, and I don't really uh, want to harp on about that. But um, in a way, there's the superficial self sense, um, seeking enchantment through. Um, the, the, basically the manipulations of capital, consumerism, being manipulated by it, being a pawn in a larger game, um, but given enough of a possibility for trying desperately to fashion something interesting um, uh, so that our, our uh, money and consumerist and, uh, thrust can, can try and do that. But actually, all that trying at that level just, just goes back to um, create the superficial, or to preserve a superficiality of the self-sense. Because it's superficial, we try and, the self-sense, we try and re-enchant it. We don't have, we have very limited possibilities for that. And, and those possibilities actually keep, keep the self-sense superficial, superficial. So we're caught in something here, potentially. And then add to that, um, this further very common idea, again, um, it's, a, it's quite a modernist idea. One wouldn't um, recognize it as such, but we have this idea of the authentic self, the real me. And so we feel, we're told that we need to be authentic, and that there's a true me, and, and we really feel that at times. And And I have that pulling me one way, and on the other side, this social pressure because of the way the society is set up and again the um, the lack of inner depth to what a human being is conceived of and felt to be so I have uh, the, the other pressure is what do others think 
long as I don't have that access to the depth, what others think and the social anxiety and the, the pressure to conform or not be judged or, or, or this or that is huge. And these things pull in different directions. I've got to be authentic to myself. There is an authentic self that I need to be somehow true to and in touch with. And on the other side, what do others think of me? Is it okay? Am I okay? Tell me I'm okay. What can I do and manipulate and uh, spend on to make others others feel uh, others think I'm okay? How am I in the eyes of others? Am I okay? Am I enough? Am I uh, singled out as faulty in the eyes of others? So all this again, I'm just saying, it creates so much um, tension and. Uh, if you like non uh, creative in creativity inhibiting confusion and constraints and, and tension around this whole um, wish that we have to, to, to for an enchanted sense of existence and of self and other. And we talked, you know. Just repeating now, but we've talked about you know if I see the self, if I see what a human being is as only really a product of evolution, of biological evolution, that this is kind of this is what we get down to when we're really talking about what's real. You are a product, and your behaviour, and your choices, and your way you perceive. It's all the product of evolution, or the product of of neurology, of uh, your neurophysiology. Now, for some people, that view can be enchanting. But if we're only that, um, it's probably not that enchanting. If we're regarded as only, if we're uh, regarded with a reductionist view, a biological reductionist view, it's difficult to be in, uh, to have a sense of a really enchanted self. Reductionism inhibits that. We need um, enchantment. Needs this beyond. We need to be more than that. So of course. Um, biology and neurophysiology and evolution and all, all of that historical conditioning, everything. But this needs to be something beyond, something more than, in order for a sense of enchantment, as we said right from the beginning. And again, uh, you know, in Dharma circles is so common nowadays. If we're talking about the self view of self and other, and this kind of um, actually sometimes dogmatic kind of conclusion or assertion um, the Buddha said or the, the, the truth of the self is what the self really is is a process a process of um, bi- a biological process and a mental process even sometimes in some cases the mental process is reduced to a biological process a neuronal one etc a brain process but the self is the process and sometimes I've cracked what the Buddha was saying the self is a process this is the true nature of things anything else is a bit of a delusion self is a process now I would say that's a certain level of um, a meditative view or a way of looking a perception that's available to us to feel ourselves as process moment to moment um, aggregates arising of um, sensation and vedana and perception and consciousness and all that intention and um, useful at a certain level a certain level of freedom will come come out of that but it's only a way of looking it's only a certain level of perception it's not ultimately true it's not ultimately true the self is a process I've talked about this in other talks I'm not going to go into it now um, it's not ultimately true it's definitely not the deepest that perception of the self as a process does not yield for us the deepest freedom absolutely not and nor is it particularly enchanting as a view of the self the self is a moment to moment arising of conditioned uh, in a kind of mechanistic flow a conditioned arising of a moment of sensation and perception and neuronal functioning etc we can try and enchant that view of process and, and talk about words like flow uh, and bring in river imagery and all that kind of stuff, maybe to a certain extent. But uh, there's problems with that. Not ultimately true, doesn't bring the deepest freedom, doesn't really open up the uh, capacity and the range of, of possible enchantment.
Or then there's another kind of view, um, the, the self is really one with um, cosmic awareness, or one with cosmic love, or one with God, um, or the self is nothing, um, it, the self is a total illusion, or, or whatever. And that's the real nature of the self. And that also, I would say, uh, would, suffers from the, 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 the same three lacks. It's not ultimately true. It's not ultimately true that the self is one. It's a, it's a level, it's a deep mystical experience, a level of perception, important, beautiful, as is the sense that the self, the perception that the self is nothing, it's absolutely nothing. Um, but it's not ultimately true. I'd say it's, it's wonderful and important to have that as a, as a perception, as a level of perception, understanding. It's not ultimately true. It's not the deepest freedom, and it will not open up the deepest and the fullest enchantment. What is necessary uh, for re-enchanting, for really full, really deep, really wide re-enchantment, and delivering us from what is not ultimately true, what is not quite deeply freeing, um, is the flexibility of view that I keep um, harping on about. Flexibility of self-view and the insight legitimizing and underpinning that flexibility. After you see all these different kinds of uh, meditative and mystical experiences moving in and out and understanding how they arise and how they disappear, understanding the fabrication, dependent arising of both self and perception. And then you start to see what's really true is, is this very flexibility. The flexibility of self-view. And it legitimizes that flexibility in the moving in and out of, and the adopting of different self-views. There's an insight here of what actually is ultimately true. And uh, we need a conception, an insight, um, that allows, supports, and actually insists on a flexibility of self-view. Allows, supports, and insists on a flexibility of self-view. It's this that um, most fully allows not just the biggest freedom, um, is congruent with the ultimate truth, but also it most, most fully allows the re-enchantment. So we can add, add to this, uh, you know, if we ask this question, okay, there's all this confusion and this uh, disenchantment in, in, um, in our worldview, our view of the cosmos, and our view of self, our sense of self, and to have a soulful re-enchantment of self and other. Whenever I use self in this talk, uh, I, everything that I say about self applies to other as well, other selves, um, both as um, you know an idea, but also as applicable in practice. I can practice viewing an other in, in these different ways. So what's needed in, in re-enchanting self and other um, is one of the things is uh, a view and a conception of personality and of the personal relevance of what arises for us. So, in other words, um, both within and without, in, in, in terms of the, the, the ideas of fate or destiny, um, including the difficult, that somehow that needs to get included, I'm going to come back to this, that also needs to get included, um, not erased out in a universe, universality. So we somehow want a kind of enchantment that really includes and even emphasizes not just the universal, but also the very personal, the very particular and the personal relevance of what arises for us inside and outside in our lives. And included in that is the difficult, is the dukkha. So that um, that view, uh, again, allows and supports um, a, a sense of, of senses of sacredness of, of the person and of the um, uh, personal relevances of what arises for us. So that the events of our life um, are, are, are somehow integrated into a whole view of sacredness, of the sacredness of the self, of the person. So 
does the conception of the self, uh, view of the self that we're entertaining, or the wider view of the self, um, the view, does the conception of the self, but also the, the conception of its relationship with experiences and its relationship with the cosmos and time. So all of that conception of self, conception of its relationship with, with the experiences it goes through in life, and also its relationship with the cosmos and with time. Does the conception we have of all of that um, allow a transformation in our, in our relationship with suffering that becomes soul-making? So that suffering becomes soul-making. Does our conception of self, its relationship with experiences, and its relationship or constellation with regard to the cosmos and time, allow a transformation of the relationship with suffering, with our suffering, all kinds of suffering, so that so that, that suffering becomes soul-making? And how fully does it allow that and support that transformation? How deeply does it allow and support that transformation? So this is this is what what um, what what needs to be included and involved in a soulful reenchantment of self and other. And at an even more subtle level of what what self means is just just as subject uh, rather than object, as opposed to just as consciousness, if you like. Um, what what does it mean to be enchanted at to reenchant that subtle level, just consciousness? That level of self as 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 subject. And again, purely the complexities of neurology. There's a certain enchantment in that. How full? How deep? Again, uh, some ideas of of Buddha nature, some versions of the idea of Buddha nature in in Buddha Dharma teachings. Some philosophies in the West. Um, Certainly in the in Neoplatonism and other other currents through Western history, but also in Hegel, uh, the German philosopher Hegel, etc. This um, the human subject in in one's subjectivity, meaning in one's consciousness, that too is regarded as um, divine, as as included, and is is re- There's a view that can re-enchant it by giving it other dimensions and divinities. We'll come back to this. But as I said uh, a few minutes ago, w- w- somehow an opening of the view, uh, the views and the conception of self, of what a human being is, uh, and a flexibility of view and views and conceptions of self and other, this is necessary to re-enchantment. So, uh, this is again something from Nietzsche. Says, uh, the belief that regards the soul as uh, as some as a monad as a an atomon meaning as as one thing as indivisible uh, this belief ought to this belief ought to be expelled from science it is not at all necessary though to get rid of quote the soul at the same time in other words we don't need to get rid of this idea of soul but it's just what it's the idea of the soul as just this and it's one thing and it's it's uh, uh, rigidified and fixed, and there's a sing- singleness of you. But the way is open, he continues, the way is open for new versions and refinements of the soul hypothesis. And then he runs few, uh, through a few different possibilities, and, and so such conceptions as this and this and this, and soul as subjective multiplicity. So in this sense of plurality of soul and plurality of... Um, uh, plurality of views of what the soul is. He's saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's something in the concept of soul, or rather, we can um, extend and give uh, a range of meanings to what we mean by soul that that it actually might be very fruitful. Like run screaming or cry, uh, that's illegal when people use words like self or soul. Actually, concepts when they're skillfully handled, when handled, when they're um, related to with insight, actually open things up. And I'll come back and say more about that. And then he continues with this, um, opening views up this way. He says, um, the new psychologists. Um, 
by precisely that act, by opening up the notion of soul, um, condemn themselves to invention. They condemn themselves to invention. In other words, you have to be creative in the view and in the perception, etc. We're back to this idea of art and creation. And he says, by precisely that act, act, condemn themselves to invention and, who knows, perhaps to discovery. So again, this, this um, ambiguity about creation and discovery, right there, invention and discovery, through the skillful and open uh, use of a concept like soul. In another, uh, um, in another place, in another book, actually, um, Nietzsche says, some souls one will never discover. So some selves, some souls of oneself, if you like. Some souls one will never discover unless one invents them first. Just a deep understanding of um, this, this uh, fact of we create and we discover. We create and we discover uh, the soul, the self, the other, etc. So we need this... Uh, kind of elasticity, uh, as I said, of, of, of the concept of the self or soul or whatever, in order that this soul-making dynamic, the um, eros and the psyche and the logos, the, concept, the, um, the eros and the image, imaginal sense and the conceptual framework, in other words, can, um, can feed each other, fertilize each other, open each other, expand each other, enrich each other, deepen each other. That's all there in the elasticity of the logos, of the, of the, of the conception. When that's elastic enough, then we can fall in love with the self. And the sense of the self, uh, whether it's self of other or, or self of self, can, uh, can become endlessly deep, complex, enriched, filled with image. If a human being uh, is regarded at just from the point of view, or, or a reductionist point of view of biology or cognitive science, uh, mechanistic reductions, um, then the image of self dies because it, does, it no longer retains that element of mystery of inexhaustibility that an image needs to have to stay alive, as we talked about in other talks. So even there's a, there needs to be a kind of undefinability as part of that mystery and an inexhaustibility. There needs to be an undefinability um, of, of any concept, uh, whether it's self or love or the divine. Also Dharma, there's an undefinability to it that allows a, 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 an, an endless moving into mystery. It always has a beyond, an inexhaustibility, and that's necessary for the soul making. For any of these concepts, self, love, divine, dharma, etc., etc., anything that matters deeply to us needs to retain a certain amount of undefinability, mystery, inexhaustibility, and reductionist explanation summing up will not allow that. So undefinability and mystery as uh, something fertile, not just something so oh, it's undefinable or it's just a mystery and we just shrug and turn away. We just say, oh, that means it's nonsense because it's not definable or it's mysterious. So um, more than that.